Not sure where the pigeon is just now. It's beginning to feel a little bit more like the stable here as we have uh, these kinds of visitors with us. Uh, John chapter 6, that passage uh, which Richard just read, it's on page uh, 1071. It'd be great if you had it open in front of you. Um, If you've been part of this series so far, you'll know that some of these passages in John's Gospel are sort of tricky enough, um, and therefore having it open will help you. Uh, so, So please do that. Let's just pray. Father God, in this time when we remember your sending Jesus among us, we remember what John said at the very outset of his gospel, that Jesus was the word of God made flesh, becoming human. Father God, show us more of Jesus today so that we can know your mind, hear your word, uh, and know how you've called us to live. Help us to, to get your word so that we get Jesus. Amen. I was telling you last week that I was looking forward to going to see The Hobbit, and uh, I've already done that. Uh, didn't hang around too long, so uh, yesterday afternoon we spent three hours together in Middle Earth. Um, don't listen to the reviewers who say it's too long and no good. It's brilliant. Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy it if you do go along to it. Uh, I mentioned The Hobbit last week because I was saying that Peter Jackson has split uh, the, the one story into three parts, and I, was, I suppose I was making an excuse for myself of having to split one part of John's Gospel here into parts to try and tackle it. So this morning we're going to deal with part two of something that we started to look at last week, and that's this long passage uh, beginning really in verse 25 through the, to the end of John chapter 6, where Jesus says that he's the bread of life. Last week part one, this week part two. Last week we started thinking together about reasons why people don't get Jesus. And that maybe doesn't sound like a very Christmassy theme. You know, this is surely the time of year when more than any other time people do get Jesus. Um, It seems to me actually it's a good time to ask the question. Because the truth is that despite the huge amount of time Uh, money and energy that's going to go into celebrating Jesus' birth these next few weeks, most people are going to proceed into 2013 entirely unchanged by that experience. Many people won't notice Jesus at all. Uh, Many people who will be pointed to Jesus at a a school nativity or at a church carol service will, will choose just not to go there, not to think too much about him. And other people who who do maybe take a moment to consider who this baby was and who he went on to be uh, may just choose in the end not to give him the time of day. So even in the Christmas season where superficially it's all about Jesus, his coming to earth, his, his life among us, many people still don't get Jesus. John drew our attention to the theme, if you remember, towards the end of the chapter, and I pointed this out last week, verse 66. He says, from that time on, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So there were lots of people who who heard Jesus' teaching, who saw what he was doing, and they didn't get it, didn't get him. 
They walked away. Last week we noticed a couple of the reasons why that might be. Why did people walk away from Jesus? Well, they walked away from him because of the the spiritual nature of his message. Do you remember we said, people had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. And they were looking to Jesus to repeat that, to be the answer to, to world hunger, to be answer to their political aspirations at that time in Israel. They wanted bread to fill their hungry stomachs. But Jesus said no. My primary work is to give you bread for your souls, bread for eternal life. The second reason that people rejected Jesus were because of his extraordinary claims. He said some incredible things in this chapter. He said, I'm God's son. I'm from God. He said, I've come to give eternal life. So the people said, nah, that's not right. We know you. You're from up the road there. We know your mom and your dad. You're the carpenter from Nazareth. There's nothing out of the ordinary about you. So a spiritual message for a world blinded by materialism, a figure too ordinary to be all that he claimed to be, those were the reasons that the people of Jesus' day were rejecting him. And it seems to me they're still pretty much the reasons that people reject him today. In the passage that Richard read for us a moment ago, we get a sense of a third reason why people reject Jesus. And it's the the message of his death on the cross. He doesn't mention the cross here, but he does allude to it in in what's a pretty gruesome metaphor. By the way, if you didn't notice something gruesome, it's just a, a a sign that you weren't listening uh, and often we don't do that. We, we put our heads down and have the Bible open in front of us and, and it sort of passes us by. Jesus said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. Verse 51. So Jesus has already been talking about the living bread that we saw that last week. And we realized that he hadn't come just to fill people's tummies, but to to meet the deepest hungers of the human soul. But look at the way he develops it later in verse 51. He says, This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Jesus says, we need to eat his flesh to receive the eternal life that he brings. What does that mean? I've already said it's a gruesome metaphor. But standing here as we do after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, standing in continuity with the Christian church, we can read this as as maybe talking about something like our communion. We eat bread, we drink wine, we remember his body broken and his blood shed for us. But nobody that day would have heard any of that. No, Jesus is telling the crowd at Capernaum, in that synagogue that day, that the life that he's been talking about, the life that he's come to bring, is going to be offered to the world through his violent death. And the clue to understanding the passage here, I think, is when you compare a verse from today's passage, verse 54, with a verse from last week's in verse 40. If you have a quick look, this is a good moment to to really look at the text. In verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
and I'll raise him up at the last day. In verse 40, he says, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. The two verses are clearly parallel. They both talk about people who will have eternal life and whom Jesus will raise up on the last day. But the one verse describes the people concerned as those who are looking to Jesus and believing in him. And the other verse describes those people as those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. They're the same people. People who believe in Jesus are people who eat his bread, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, Jesus isn't talking literally. There's no cannibalism here. But Jesus is telling us that to believe in him is to believe in and rely on his sacrificial death in our place. It's to see that brutal tearing apart of his body in death as the place where eternal life is released to those who believe. Can I show you a couple more passages, a couple more verses in our passage which reinforce what I'm saying here? Well, you can hardly say no, can you? Uh, I'll, I'll fire ahead then. Look at verse 53. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Even with our sense of communion as a way of understanding what Jesus says here, these are difficult words. Spare a thought for Jesus' first audience who didn't have that extra insight that we have. They're confused. Verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're troubled. This is a hard teaching, they say in verse 60. Who can accept it? Look at what Jesus says in verse 61. He asks, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It seems to me that Jesus is saying, if you find this difficult when I'm using symbolic language, if you find that hard to get your head around, wait until you see the real thing. Wait until you see me killed, resurrected and returning to my Father in heaven. And by the way, if Jesus dropped the metaphor of eating his flesh, drinking his blood, if he had talked about what was really going to happen to him, that he'd be taken by Roman soldiers, that he'd be crucified as a common criminal outside of the city walls, the Jewish crowd would have been even more appalled and troubled than they are here. Because they knew that the the symbol of the cross was a symbol of defeat and of shame. And and folks, it still is today. This idea that, that God comes among us and that he dies in weakness and in shame is an idea that we want to run a million miles from. We'd rather follow the successful. Why do you think it is that celebrities fill so much of our time? 
wouldn't want to follow a, a loser. And that's how Jesus came across to the people of his day. So there it is. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen three reasons why people don't get Jesus. The spiritual nature of his message, the extraordinary nature of his claims, and now the scandal of his cross. When you see it spelled out like that, it makes you wonder how anyone ever would get Jesus. And that's what I want to spend the last few moments thinking about this morning. Three verses in this chapter tell us why people do get Jesus and why some people always will. Verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Finally, verse 64. There are some of you who don't believe, for God, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would believe and which would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Okay. So some of the stuff we've thought about the last couple of weeks is difficult. And then to explain it, we add something possibly even more difficult. The idea that God gives faith. I didn't know where he was. <laughs> uh, So we've said it's difficult for us to overcome these obstacles, these barriers that stand in our way of believing in Jesus. And here the Bible gives quite a difficult message. It says actually faith might just be something that God gives. And that seems difficult as well. We like the idea that we choose to have faith or not. But that's entirely our doing, just what is God's role and ours in our salvation. My former theology professor, Dr. Jim Packer, talked uh, about this issue, this part of Christian theology one time, and he, he tells a story to, to shed some light on it. He talks about when he was a student at Oxford, and he and his mates were out punting on the river, and he had fallen headfirst into the water. And he said it was a, a frightening experience because there was a lot of weed around that tangled his arms and his legs and because the water was very deep. And at one point he was afraid that he was going to drown. Imagine, then he says, the possible reaction of my friends in the boat. Some of them might have said, Oh, you'll be all right, Jim. You'll get out if you just try a bit harder. Try a little bit harder. And it'll be okay. Others in the boat might have said, Oh, listen, old Bean, I'd love to help you, but I've rather a problem of the conscience of getting involved in someone else's life, of interfering with their free will. I'll give you some tips on swimming, if you like. So Dr. Packer says that these two responses illustrate how some people have understood 
Christ's work of salvation throughout history. Some have said that man has the natural ability that he needs to be made right with God if only we could try a little bit harder. Others have said that God will help us as much as he can, but there are limits to what God can and will do to help a human being. That's all very well, but surely the burning question is this. What do you do when you, like Dr. Packer, are drowning and your self-effort just isn't enough? Packer goes on with his illustration to, to talk about how glad he was on that occasion when one of his friends jumped into the river, when he freed him from the weeds, when he dragged him to the bank, and after some artificial resuscitation, had him back on his feet. That, says Dr. Packer, is what I call a rescue. In John 6, Jesus tells us that that is what he calls a rescue too. Jesus knows that there are incredible obstacles preventing people like you and I from believing in him. There's the things we have talked about, the spiritual nature of his message, his extraordinary claims, the scandal of the cross. But these obstacles don't discourage Jesus. He knows that it's God in the end who gives men and women faith. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Maybe you still find this idea troubling, that God gives faith. I think I did find this more troubling at one point than I do now when I've allowed myself to to dwell on it a little bit. Let me explain. I find this encouraging in, in three different ways. I find it encouraging as a preacher because it means that whenever people hear a message like this and when they walk away unchanged, they're, they're doing the same today as they did in Jesus' time. And, and Jesus didn't allow himself to be demoralized by that. He simply said, all that the Father gives me will come. I find the truth that God alone gives faith encouraging to, to me as, as I believe. In those times when I wonder, is this all true? Am I right with God? Is my future secure? Then I'm left relying not on myself, but on the words of Jesus. He says, I will raise them up on the last day. And folks, if it's true that God gives faith, then that's good news for anyone here this morning who is searching. When Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away, he says that not, to, not so that we torment ourselves trying to work out if our name is on God's list or not. If you listen to the invitations of Jesus in the Gospels, that's never the tone of them. The tone of them is always, come, if you will. So our question is, do we want to come to him? If you're someone here today and you don't have faith, or, or not much faith, I ask you, when you search your heart, do you see a small glimmering of spiritual desire? Desire? 
Do you have some growing sense of interest in Jesus and in what the Bible teaches about him? Do you have some small stirring of faith? Well, if you do, that's great. And I would say give thanks to God for it. And I'd want to encourage you. See verse 37 there? It can be translated like this. Whoever is in the process of coming to me, I'll never drive away. I've been reading the Gospels for years and I've tried to work out who are the people whom Jesus welcomes. And my sense is that no matter how far from him you are, if he sees you taking a small step, if you've started that journey of movement towards him, then he welcomes you. As soon as we begin to journey towards Jesus, he encourages us, he supports us in our quest. And think about it, why else would we be here if God isn't in this? Why else would we gather in a half-warm, century-old building, the kind of place where pigeons come to fly around? Why would we get out of our beds on a Sunday morning to do this? with people whom we barely know in some cases, if God weren't in this, if he weren't gently drawing us closer to himself. Folks, it's not bad news that God's the one who gives faith. It's good news. He's actively at work here drawing us, if we'll allow him, to himself. Let's finish for this morning. We've been saying this last couple of weeks that it's hard to follow Jesus. And John doesn't shy away from that at all in his gospel. This isn't upbeat propaganda here where everyone follows Jesus with a smile on their face. Verse 60, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. But as well as recognizing these difficulties, we've seen this morning that God gives faith. And the 12 disciples, I think, give us an idea of what this looks like. When Jesus sees the crowds deserting him, and when he turns to the disciples in verse 67 and he asks, you don't want to leave me, do you? Look at Peter's response. It's the response of a man who's been given eyes to see, ears to hear, and faith to believe. And he simply says this, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. That's it, isn't it? That's the point we need to reach with Jesus Christ. Like Peter, we need to be completely undone. We need to say, there is Nothing else I can do. I've discovered that you are the living God come among us. Nobody else. Nothing else compares to that. Maybe you've seen that. And if you have, I'd encourage you to to enjoy, celebrate that this Christmas season. That you've found faith in God and Jesus Christ. But maybe you haven't yet 
Not fully. But there's something interesting going on in your life. Because no matter how many hard times you live through, and no matter how much your spirit is bruised, and no matter how much your heart is torn, and no matter how much you think you'd love to walk away, you can't. There's something stopping you from turning from the living God and walking away. He won't let you. He won't let you turn your back entirely. A lot of other people are content to do just that, but you can't. Folks, people sometimes want to know how to become a Christian. How an adult begins the faith journey. Maybe we need to say what Peter says here. In some senses, it's not very positive. It's not, Jesus entered my life, took all my troubles away, and I've smiled ever since. He simply says, I've no choice. I've nowhere else to go. Because I've seen it. Maybe that's the new life that God's going to birth into someone here today. Where they simply say, do you know what? I've run out of excuses. I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to turn and follow him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, in this Christmas season, we can feel under a a certain pressure to get into the spirit of things, to feel nostalgic about Jesus coming into the world, the baby Jesus in the manger. Lord, we pray that you would Allow this season, when we remember your coming into the world, to be the time when we search our hearts to see if we're getting Jesus. Lord, we, we've seen in your word that, that you recognize that many people don't. They don't get you. But Lord, we thank you for the wonderful truth in your word that you are at work in the world longing to give faith to men and women who will only open their hearts to receive from you. Lord, we pray, each one of us, that you'll give us more faith today than we had yesterday. That we'd walk further on the road than we have before. Or that we'd start the journey if we haven't started yet. Lord, we have nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Amen.